Resting is hard. A lot of people struggle with rest and recovery. Mike Posner says, it's hard to take it easy. It's easy to be hard. Here I am again, stuck in the middle. And uh, I don't think Mike Posner was writing a song for the growth equation, but I think a lot of people feel stuck in the middle. Today, we're going to discuss how to get unstuck and what it means to take rest and the very real challenges that a lot of people face when it comes to shutting things down. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Hey, Steve. I am uh, I'm doing pretty well today. Not so, much, not so much new to report. Looking forward to a conversation on taking it easy, because I've been taking it easy, and uh, it can be hard to take it easy. It's kind of ironic, you know? You know, I'm glad we're talking about this because, well, I wish I could take it easy and I'm not being very productive. I'm certainly not getting any rest. So chalk that out to a newborn in the household. But I'm trying to find ways to get some rest and some space to, to take it easy before I lose my mind. So that's also why I'm looking forward to having this conversation. How is your mind now that you're a dad of an infant? What's happening up there between the ears? How are things going? I mean, it's it's going. She's just, you know, going through her phase of not being a good sleeper. And instead of being asleep most of the day, now she's decided that, you know, the world is interesting. And I'm going to stay up way too much and way too often to look around and cry and complain. So... Uh, my brain is a little bit fried right now because I'm working on, you know, mini naps. Um, but it is surprising. Like, you do adjust and adapt. So you just find ways to, to make it work and adapt as best you can and, you know, use uh, brief periods of clarity to get some stuff done. And that's about it. It's our two rules of sleep in action, right? Rule number one, do everything you can to get sleep. Rule number two, don't freak out if you can't get sleep for factors outside of your control. Uh, no one's ever died of acute sleep deprivation. The data is pretty clear that people that have children on average actually live a little bit longer. Obviously, there's a million confounders. It has nothing to do with the kids. But at the very least, it gives us some confidence that going through sleep deprivation isn't going to cut your life short if you, uh, if you keep it limited. Some people have five kids and they live a long time. Exactly. And you know, one of the compounding things that's probably happening is my testosterone is probably going down as well, because not only the sleep, but data and research shows that when you have children and you're male, testosterone goes down, especially if you, if you have girls, but any children. And the reason is pretty simple. You know, they believe evolutionarily it got us out of kind of conquer and aggressive mode and put men into, hey, I've got to take care of something and support and not leave and abandon this child and my wife. I wonder if that's why I can't hit my lifts at the gym these days, because um, Lila's really got me wrapped around her finger. 
I think that, you know, I'm going to tell you a quick story. This is a tangent, but I think it's interesting. This was like, gosh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. There was a really elite level athlete um, who had some blood work and like their testosterone was just low. And it was probably like overtraining and a bunch of stuff. Well, I uh, asked an expert um, physiologist. I just sent him his way on an email to connect him. And uh, I'll never forget, like, he, he kind of outlined some nutrition and sleep and recovery on things, how to boost your body back up, right? All straightforward legal stuff. And then the last one he said, unfortunately, because you have this, this athlete had multiple kids and multiple girls, he said, you're just going to be a little bit low because of that. So, you know, deal with it. Kids are great though. They bring a lot of texture and meaning to your life. So if you're on the fence, don't take this as a reason. I mean, there are plenty of good reasons not to have kids, but your testosterone getting lower is probably not one. It is not. I, and in fact, I think it is a good thing, um, actually, because it makes you care and support and blah, 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 and all sorts of good stuff. Let the body do its thing, man. That's That's right. All right. So we're in the middle of summer. Summer for a lot of people is a time to um, to go on vacation and uh, to rest and recover. Yeah, a lot of people struggle with rest and recovery. This was something that was really um, kind of starting to happen when we published our first book together, Peak Performance, back in 2017. But um, I don't think we could have guessed just how much harder it would become in a world where like the attention economy and the um, constant need to be on primarily for knowledge workers, but it's really sort of kind of permeated to all aspects of life. I am friends. Oh yeah. You know, Emil Alzamora, the wonderful um, contemporary sculptor. And he and I were just talking like, he feels like he has to be on all the time and he's a craftsperson that makes fine art in his shed. So resting is hard. Uh, Mike Posner says, it's hard to take it easy. It's easy to be hard. Here I am again, stuck in the middle. And uh, I don't think Mike Posner was writing a song for the growth equation, but I think a lot of people feel stuck in the middle. And um, today we're going to discuss how to get unstuck and what it means to take rest and the very real challenges that a lot of people face when it comes to shutting things down. Yeah, I think there's a a couple of high-level things I want to talk about before we dive in is that, you know, just to reiterate, I really do think it's, uh, it's really freaking hard. And step one is acknowledging that because there is a demand, a need to be on, especially if you're kind of a pusher and in your work or what have you, there's a need to be on. There's an expectation often to be on, right? I'm, I always go back to a story of a good friend who's an investment banking told me of, you know, uh, junior employees essentially scheduling, scheduling emails at, to go out at 1 a.m., 3 a.m. to make it at least look like they're, they're working at that point because that was the expectation in that culture to, you know, always be working and, and et cetera. And then the last part that I think is really interesting and damaged our ability to kind of rest and recover or you know, you mentioned summertime, take vacations, is that our rest and recovery has become performative. Our sleep, well, I, well we rest and recover. What do we do? We It's performative. We track it. 
and then we post about it online. Our vacations, what do we do? You know, instead of being in the moment and recovering or enjoying and using that joy and connection to make us, you know, recovered and feel feel fulfilled, we make sure that we take the perfect picture, video for Instagram, TikTok, etc., to make it seem like we're having a lot of fun. So I think there's also that added layer, which I don't think we recognized or gave attention to when we wrote Peak Performance, which is, you know, even our rest has become this kind of performative work, which doesn't allow us to restore. I think that's right. That's a really good point. Um, When you become, in your own mind at least, a commodified brand, then you're always on sale. And when you're always on sale and you always feel like you need to be marketing yourself, then nothing can be rest. And um, this is definitely true for a quote-unquote influencer, but I think it's true for a lot of people that work more traditional knowledge work jobs that still get the same dopamine rush that most people get when they put something on the internet and they want people to like and comment on it. So I think that there's these maybe two factors that are making it hard to rest. The first is it's so easy to get wired and almost addicted to the frenetic pace of day-to-day life. Emails, text messages, phone calls, if you're on social media, social media, breaking news. Um, The podcast host and news junkie Ezra Klein has talked really, I think, eloquently about like getting addicted to the news in his case. And he calls it an addiction because there are negative consequences. He's like, if I'm feeling relaxed, I feel like I need to feel anxious about something. So I go to NewYorkTimes.com and then I can feel anxious. It's very bizarre, but I heard that. It doesn't so much resonate with me, but I know a lot of people that, that feel that. And then the second trap is exactly what you were talking about, which is when what was once rest becomes either performative or a perceived parts of, um, of our job. So let's take those in in sequential order. And I can start real quick with some comments on the first challenge. In I think it's very real, and that's what led me to this notion of a digital Sabbath, which is something that I've been doing since the start of this year. I've done it every Saturday with the exception of one. Um, and we can get into details on why. It's kind of funny. But... Um, what I found is that it takes me a good couple of hours to like unwind and come off the frenetic buzz of being plugged in before I feel good. So if I were just to say I'm going to take like three hours unplugged, right when I'm starting to sink in to how good it feels to be unplugged, it's like, oh, like three hours are up, time to check back in. Um, so yeah, I think having Saturday morning to Sunday morning with no devices other than my, my emergency burner flip phone, um, that's been a really good practice for me. And um, for Steve, too, because I don't call him on Saturday, so he gets a day off of me. That's right. I, it, it's been nice, you know. Actually, I, test, I, I texted you during the one Saturday that you, uh, you weren't doing it, and I didn't expect a response, but I just text you stuff so that, you know, you see it on Sunday when you get or whenever you get off of it, but you respond and I was like, well, what's going on here? Um, but I, I do think that that, well, let me tell you now that you're making me look bad. That was my one, my one break. 
And the reason for that break was um, I went to play adult pickup basketball at the local YMCA. And Caitlin was nervous that my flip phone wouldn't be enough because she thought I was going to leave on a stretcher. And she thought that I might need all the capacities of my iPhone to resolve my torn ACL at the YMCA. So I did have my iPhone on me that Saturday. Um, and I acquiesced and I agreed with Caitlin. And actually, I was pretty worried too um, about tearing my ACL. I was actually more worried about my Achilles and my MCL, but I was worried something was going to tear. And Caitlin agreed to let me go play men's league basketball if I brought my iPhone so that I could have all its functionality for when I got injured. There we go. That's probably a, a reasonable thing given your, uh, you know, age situation. I swear to God, I'm like, I'll just bring my flip phone. She's like, you can't Google like the orthopedic urgent care center on your flip phone. <laughs> it's very true. I mean, it, it's it's kind of true and kind of scary how much dependent we are. But point being, you you know, when Caitlin overrules it, you you listen to her and she was probably right in this situation. Um, because, you know, Brad playing men's league basketball might not be the best recipe, but I think there's a lot of value to it. You know, I don't do that, but I can totally see why you would and how it would like rejuvenate. I mean, it's, there's, there's actually some interesting research and there was a book that I read, gosh, maybe a year ago, it was tied to religion and the Sabbath, but it was looking at the Sabbath from a rest and recovery standpoint. And using some of this historical stuff of like, you know, there's certain groups that take technology off on the Sabbath and blah, blah, blah. And there's some interesting data that shows that it's it helps our long-term health and well-being because like it provides this kind of recentering, regrounding, you know, getting away from things, getting your brain to get out of internet brain for a while and can totally see how it how it would be helpful. Yeah, I um I'm curious, why don't you do it? Why don't I? Yeah. I have a newborn child. Okay, go on. <laughs> um so that means that I use my phone a lot for a lot of things. So right now it's my thing that I sit there. So to give context, our our child doesn't sleep. Our baby doesn't sleep very well during the day. So that means there are like endless hours of me rocking in a chair. Um, so often that means endless hours of me rocking in a chair with lullabies or other sounds coming from my phone while trying to read a book to keep myself from going crazy. Um so largely that right now, I think before that I would go periods of time where I just kind of leave it in a drawer in the kitchen and just try and stay away from, it. I mean, I didn't have a rule, but try and stay away from it for a long period of time and not answer Brad's calls. Um, and that was pretty effective. And I'd like to get to a place where maybe I get off of it for a day or something like that, some period of time. But life is chaotic right now. Yeah, I hear that. I can't believe what a big proponent I've become of it. Um, and not for any, like, values reason, if anything, the opposite. Because I know that I'm such a junkie and, like, I will be distracted and kind of addicted to that if I don't remove it for an extended um, an extended period of time. You'd be shocked at, 
like all the same excuses that I had in the very easy workarounds. Oh, I, I'm sure there's easy workarounds to most of this stuff, but I probably, I don't know. It's not the time to do it in my life right now. Yeah, that's fair. Well, listeners, I think that um, the point is having some sort of constraint that you physically remove the temptation to be online is really important. And then realizing that it often takes a decent measure of time to settle into that period of rest. So depends on the person, depends on how wired you normally are. But if during the day you're someone that's like constantly on email and on the internet and reading news or reading reports and you're just in touch with people, it's going to probably take you a lot longer to shift into a period where you can really relax and let some of that go. Whereas if you're someone that spends very little time, maybe all you do on the internet is check your email once a day and listen to our podcast. Well, then for you, there's probably no benefit in this because you're kind of living your life like that already. Um, But I think the point around some constraints and then giving yourself some time to dial into rest, because I'll tell you, one of the most common things that I see on the way to people burning out is this double sensation where they're just desperate to take a break. But the minute that they try to take a break, they get really anxious and restless. So then they think, oh, like the whole point of this is to be restful, but I'm really anxious, so I'm going to pick up my phone. And I think realizing that that anxiousness and that restless is completely normal. It's like a slight withdrawal symptom from your addiction to being connected. And that's why you have to expect it and give it time to subside. Um, because otherwise you get in this vicious cycle where then you pick up the phone again and then you get desperate for a break. And then every time you take a break, you get anxious. So you pick up the device, you start working and three years later, you're burned out. Exactly. And I should add my, my brain's not working very well because I'm off a couple hours sleep, but I should add, it's not just lullabies and stuff like that. So our, our bassinet like moves and has sounds that's connected to the phone, our sound machine is connected to the phone. Our swing that she sits in is connected. Like you, 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 everything is controlled through the phone. So at 2 a.m. when she starts crying, it's a whole heck of a lot easier to just go to the phone and hit like move and make some noise so that hopefully you go back to sleep so that I don't have to get up and get you. Um, so it's, it's those reasons, I, but I hear that. And I'm, and again, like you're doing great. We're all doing great. I, I'm going to sound like our mutual friend, Cal Newport here. Like, to me, these are the prime examples of how you only think of the upsides of these, like, products without necessarily their downsides. So we've gone, like, completely old school with everything, not because it's easier, it's often harder, but just because, like, we want to try to separate that sort of stuff from the phone. And I'm not saying we're right, maybe we're wrong, Um, but I think it's like a very Cal Newportian and digital minimalism, you know, point where like we see these technologies and like, oh, it's so seamless. I don't have to have 19 different devices and I can, you know, use the baby monitor and the sound machine and the lullabies all from the phone. But then what you don't realize is that that means you're kind of like yoked to your phone. But I think I think it depends on the situation. Like if that is if it was me sitting on the, you know, on the couch being like, oh, my remote is on my phone, so I don't have to have a separate remote for watching TV or like using the computer or whatever have it. I think it's different because the prior, the number one priority in my life right now is anything that helps me get sleep. Yeah. And I would just, I would, I would wonder how much it actually helps you get sleep. Oh, I think it does. 
because it it saves me at least or it saves us at least one sometimes two like evening like get up get the child rocket to sleep so so you so, so you hear the child cry the child you hear hazley crying and your your first option is to hit the remote and like let the bassinet like start to like vibrate or rock and see if that puts her to sleep so it depends on the time because like we know how often she eats so sure. you're you're doing I'm not the calcul- saying like you're neglecting yeah. your child but when you she do- wakes up and she doesn't have to eat yeah you're doing the calculus of is she waking up because she needs to eat or is she waking up because she just woke herself up because she moves all all over the freaking place so if let's say we fed her and then she went to sleep but she only slept for like 30 minutes and you look at and you're like oh we fed her at 2 a.m and now it's 2 40 or what have you then yeah my first option is like hey do something technology stuff and the reason i think it again it doesn't always help but the reason i think it does save us every once in a while is because like we've done it the opposite way when we've gone and stayed with her parents in the middle of nowhere without any technology and you know for days and you're just like oh i gotta get up and try all this stuff and i mean you sometimes you have to end up in try all this stuff anyway, because as any parent knows, you just throw shit at the wall and see what works. Um, but I think it's like a, it's a nice option to have, you know? Yeah. Maybe we're doing it wrong. Maybe we need the, the robot controlled bassinet. Although Theo slept in a bassinet for four days and he just didn't sleep at all. So there's nothing <laughs> that's going to help him. I, and I think that's the key. I mean, we're getting off on parenting. Maybe we should do a parenting, but like from, our experience and then talking to you and everybody else is everybody's individual. So just it's, it's not too different from the phone stuff or whatever have you. It's like acknowledge the drawbacks and the benefits and then find what works for you um, given your situation in life. That's right. Okay. So point one, we're surrounded by frenetic, frantic energy We need to physically separate ourselves from it to be able to kind of groove into a more restful state. And oftentimes things feel more anxious and restless before they feel better just because we reach for our phone, we hear that phantom vibration, we feel the withdrawal of not being connected. And acknowledging this, realizing it, expecting it is really important. And then giving yourself time. For me, it's a full day. For you, it's nothing right now. For some people, it might be in between. For others, it might be a full weekend. But just realizing that it takes a little bit more effort to set yourself up for a restful period now than it did 20 years ago. Yep. All right. The second point that you mentioned, which I think is a really good one, is taking things that were once pure leisure and enjoyment and rest and turning them into work. Yeah. And I think here is like, you see this, I mentioned a couple examples off the top, but you see this in pretty much everything where we're, we're taking living and making it into working or performing. And the example we've used many times before, but like is sleep. Like once you start tracking sleep and gamifying it and posting it online or what have you, you're no longer using sleep to recover, but you're using sleep as something you're trying to perform at. And I think that, as we've talked endlessly, can backfire. It's no different than 
The other example I'd I'd give is uh, Strava. So Strava is like this online exercise running cycling platform that tracks all your miles in a kind of, you know, social media style way. Well, if I have a recovery run and I know it's on Strava, maybe instead of running it at eight minute pace, which I should be doing, I run it at seven minute pace and go a little further because I know it's going to go up on Strava. And if I run it on seven minute pace, I'm going to get extra likes, comments, whatever they have on those things. And it becomes performing at the recovery and taking it outside of the exercise world into the normal everyday world. Again, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but I think, you know, if the focus and attention at, you know, a concert, a sporting game, a vacation, becomes capturing and documenting the event instead of experiencing and being at the event, it shifts not only our experience, but I think also kind of like our psychology and biology a little bit, where instead of, you know, experiencing maybe awe or joy or even recovery, it becomes work because we've got a, we're essentially our own cameraman or whatever have you. Yeah, I think that that's spot on. And here the solution to me is just something that we've harped on quite a bit, but it's having areas of your life or times of your life or days of your life um, that you're just not interested in sharing with people publicly. Like it's that that simple. Um, I think that there's gradations of this too, right? There's like, Capturing a picture for yourself, for your family, for your friend text message thread, to email to some people, to put on the internet. Like there's all different levels, but once you take the picture, you're now like literally viewing whatever you're doing through a lens um, versus the, the thing itself. Yeah. And there's a lot of, but it's not any different than the cell phone or the phone usage thing. It's, there's, like nuance here and it depends, but I think it's really important just like we pointed out with the phone is to have times and places where you're being. Yeah. You got to be deliberate. It almost is like we once, you know, maybe pre-industrial revolution. So a long time ago lived, well, we, we, we didn't live in this world. Um, neither did our parents, neither did our grandparents, but maybe our great grandparents or our great great grandparents. There once was a world where people lived where being was the default Yes. And it took effort to do. And now I think we live in a world where doing is the default and it takes effort to be. Yes. hundred percent. And it, it comes back to those classic studies we've both written about in our books where, you know, people suck at being alone in a room and they'll shock themselves instead of being alone with their thoughts. Um, the reason, like, we suck at being. And I think, you know, the important point here... By the way, is going to CNN.com any different than shocking yourself when you're alone in a room? Like, people do this all the time, not just in a lab. Right, <laughs> right. Twitter. <laughs> no, it, it, and maybe that's the analogy you make. It's like, we think of shock, it's painful, blah, blah, blah. But it's the same as going on Twitter and seeing the I was bored the uh, Yeah, I was bored the other day. And not only did I go on Twitter, but I went on Twitter and in the search bar, I typed in at Elon Musk just to like see his replies because I was bored. And then I got like, oh my God, this guy's nuts. What a right. shitty way to use 10 minutes. Yeah. 
but that's what we do because it's like you type Elon Musk because you know it's going to be some crazy outrage thing that's going to get you. You know, Elon Musk and Donald Trump are the masters of attention. Yeah, and I would bet you know if if um, if someone tracked like social media searches, I bet Musk, Elon, and Trump are like the top for that reason, right? You know, you're going to get. Oh, they're phenomenal entertainers. Yeah. So I I think that's, that's kind of the big point there is that like, that's our now our shock is we are the, to use another science analogy, we are the rats in the cage, like hitting the button to either deliver the shock or deliver the hit of, hit of drugs um, because we can't just kind of sit in the cage alone. Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, so, you know, to get some concrete things is what can you do similar to the phone? I, I think I would just carve out time and space. Like, you know, for me and my thing, exercise, going on runs without anything or any, you know, anything or any device or music is important. Going on walks. I mean, we still try to do this with a baby. Um, we've got our nice little baby carrier that little Hazley's adjusting to, but going on walks with my wife and dog and now newborn is really important without phones or devices because it's a chance to connect. You know, often what we try and do well as well is like eat dinner with or eat meals without sitting there staring at your phone so you can be in an experience. Um, and then the same on, on like vacations is like making a deliberate choice to like, yeah, we want to document some of it, blah, blah, blah. But, um, there's a time and a place and then there's a time and a place to just be and experience. Yeah. And I, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna add to that and just say that in addition to time and place, I also think it's just important to be very deliberate about what parts of your life you want to share publicly and why you're doing that. And not just to do that out of a default option. Because what can start is really fun, can end up is something that you feel chained to or that um, that owns you. Um, and there's no right or wrong way to do this. I mean, there are probably some terribly wrong ways, but there's no one right way to do this. But it's just figuring out, like, what do you want just for yourself? Um, so, yeah, that's that's where I come at this from and I mean people that follow me on all the social media platforms can very clearly see that like there's not a lot of my personal life on there. Yeah, you have to for you, a reason. And yeah, I'm I, I gotta mean, listen to a podcast for that. You, yeah, you have to be you know, I'll I'll tell you this. As someone who's gosh, in some way been in some sort of public had some sort of their public life online since their teenage years. Um, going way back to the like OG blogs and stuff like that and message boards. Like you just have to be very often. I think people do it as like, Oh, this will be fun to share and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. Like there's part of it. There's things that I've shared publicly of my public life or my personal life that I think are important. But what I would encourage people to do is be like very deliberate and intentional because what you don't want is to have like your your public and private life kind of merge in some weird strange way 
because then you start doing things in your private life for your public life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or just the enjoyment as we talked about, um, can go away. Like what used to be enjoyable just for itself is now only enjoyable if it leads to whatever end you're using. So you used to like training because you loved it. And maybe there's a part of you that's competitive and wanted people in your gym to like cheer you on and see what you could put up. Or maybe you wanted to beat people in your region. That is very different than now posting those workouts and initially everyone comments because it's something new and you can start to feel really good about that. But then what happens if you have a bad workout or you post a workout and people don't comment? Like now suddenly working out becomes a part of your job or a chore, like something that you don't want to do or there's added pressure to um, when that need not be the case. I think this can happen with your kids. This can happen with your pets. This can happen with what you eat. Um, This can happen with anything. I mean, this is like the celebrity thing that I just think would be terrible is like the the 24-7 posting of everything. it's just got to be really exhausting. You know, and it reminds me of, you know, gosh, this was years ago, but I remember having conversations with NBA uh, personnel who essentially, you know, said, hey, we're having a problem. Again, this was years ago, but this is, we've got, uh, we've got players checking Twitter at halftime to see what people are saying about their performance. And yeah, like, that, that's so wild to me. Yeah, and it's not but surprising, it's, but it's wild. It's not because we're humans, right? And I think that's the key to acknowledge is we're human. Even the best of the best of players are, are performers are human. And instead of being like, you know, oh, that can never happen to me or what have you. I think what it means is we need lots of, you know, intention and then constraints around it because the last thing we want to do is be be you know, doing something that we love or enjoy or what have you. But that shift from that intrinsic to completely extrinsic on, I'm only doing this for the likes or I'm doing this because I, I used to enjoy it, but now I have this expectation. Everybody sees me as the, I don't know, the running Instagrammer or the whatever, the book reading Instagrammer. And now I only read books so that I can put put my weekly report up or whatever have you. And there's a real, you know, there's a real danger in that shift. So we just have to have to be aware of it and, you know, caution against it. For sure. I mean, since I started doing my monthly reading list, I felt that a little bit. I haven't acted on it, but I've had the thought like, oh, I should probably read a book that's going to appeal to more people versus this esoteric book. And then I read the esoteric book. And of course, like that's the most clicked on link that week. So it just goes to show you that like your gestalts are often wrong with this. Um, But yeah, like for sure, I've been thinking about like, wow, am I turning this part of my job that I really like into part of my job that now I feel like I like need to do something different than I might want to. And and is that not good? Um, Yeah. Being aware of this stuff. I think it comes back to like doing versus being and how doing is now our default and it takes some upfront effort to set yourself up to be. You know, I'm really glad we had this conversation because like we're talking about rest and recovery and all this stuff. And we could just say, you know, go the traditional route, which if you want, we've talked about it in the past and wrote about it in peak performance and in our newsletter of here's the best way to rest, like take naps and sleep and like socialize and stuff. But I think there's this deeper layer of it, which is this doing being performative, turning it off, 
you know, expectations that often gets in the way. So even if you do your, you know, your power naps every day, you might still not be rested and exhausted because of all this other stuff going around. Love it. Let's do a quick follow-up on something that we hit pretty hard on the podcast um, a couple of times within the last two months. And um, that was the RFK Jr. kind of tidal wave of anti-big pharma, anti-science, anti-vaccines, anti-anything that isn't just good sun on your back and exercise and and all natural. Um, On a podcast with um, Lex Friedman the other day, RFK Jr. said that he takes testosterone (laughs) supplementally. And I believe, Steve, the quote was, I take more supplements than I can count every day. Yes, it's I it was something along the lines of I can't name them because I take so many of them. <laughs> and he's also on an uh, anti-aging protocol and I'd just like to say on this two things is one we we called this, you know, we called in a podcast, we called it online, we said we looked at him and said, yeah, there's no way he's not on testosterone and potentially other stuff. Um but you which know, which let me wait, let me let me say real quick because so many people are like how do you know? The answer is like both of us have been around elite sport at some level and 69-year-old dudes that are clean just don't look like that. Like unless RFK Jr. was a once-in-a-generation Masters athlete, but he's not a once-in-a-generation <laughs> Masters athlete. So it's pretty simple. Um, so yeah, like it, it was just very frustrating to hear all these people be like, you're just saying that because you're worried you're not going to look like that when you're 69. It's like, fuck you. No one's going to look like that when they're 69 unless they're dope to the gills. Yeah, I mean I think that's hard to get context, but it's it's if you're around elite sport uh, enough, you have a norm and you either if there people are so far out of that norm, they're either one of the best in the world, which often means there's history behind it, like there's a progression towards it, or they're they're dope to the gills. Um and sadly, you know, that's what it is. And you know, the reason we, we pointed this out and just to tie in a tie a tie a knot and bow in this is it's not that like whatever, if you're old dude and you need testosterone or want testosterone and you go through a doctor, like that's on you. Um but and, and and I'm I'm doing this again, like just to add color. Keep your thought. I think this is important though. And like I can be values neutral about that. Like Maybe we're going to find out 40 years from now that taking testosterone when you hit 75 makes sense because the risk of testosterone use for 20 years is less than the risk of frailty when you fall. I'm open to all of that, and I know you are too. So the issue isn't the testosterone replacement. The issue is, continue. (laughs) The issue is if you're anti-vaccine, you know, anti-science essentially, you know, poo-pooing all of all of pharma, even though pharma does some shady stuff and needs regulation, as we talked about, if you're against, you know, all the traditional mechanisms of regulation of clinical trials, research work that shows that there is no link between vaccines and autism and all the other claims that that RFK has made, if you're against that, then it's it entirely hypocritical 
to then turn around and be like, oh, I'm going to take this testosterone that is made by the same pharmaceutical company that has less probably testing. I'm going to be on all these supplements that aren't regulated that forget double blind placebo controlled. Most of them have zero testing to see if they work. And even more so, zero testing to see if they're safe. What's in them? Because I mean, so many the, the of them thing are on supplements, man. That's the senator in Utah, Orrin Hatch, who like is in office because the supplement lobby funds his campaigns. And like, it's only a half joke that like seventy percent of supplements are some dude named John in Murray, Utah, tinkering in his basement. And I think the key here is, you know, if we wanted to, Brad and I could start a supplement company tomorrow and start selling stuff. Peak performance, man. We own it. And literally have little to no regulation, even if we stick something in there, a a legal steroid that shouldn't be in there is, uh, you know, it most likely wouldn't be caught because you look at the data and something like 30 to 40% of supplements are contaminated with something, um, which is just, just wild. So just the fact that again, is we're going to make this big deal about, you know, let's say the measles vaccine or what have you that has, you know, 40, 50, whatever, 60 years of data and research behind it. But on the side, I'm going to go to, you know, the anti-aging male enhancement doc doctor in the strip mall to get my anti-aging protocol. And then, you know, Joe, the uh, meathead bro at the gym to get my supplement recommendations. It's just, it's just insanity. That's all. Right. The hypocrisy is, um, is truly top shelf. Um, and I think that that is, um, that's worth calling out. I think the testosterone thing is very interesting um, in particular because that's like actually made by pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, no, someone looked it up and the main maker of most testosterone replacement therapies is Pfizer. So So he's using something that Pfizer makes for very specific conditions. He's using it presumably off-label. Correct. Yet he won't take something that is used broadly and has undergone so much more testing that is being used on label. Correct. So that is the just absolute insane mental gymnastics that one has to be willing to do. And then, of course, it makes me question everything else that he says. Now, however, maybe our boy Joe Biden should be on testosterone. I mean, he's frail. It could, I, it could really help him. <laughs> and there might be a case for that. Absolutely. As again, I'm not against testosterone use for old people. There might be a le- very legitimate case in trade-offs. But how do we figure that out, Brad? We look science. at the research and science to see if the trade-offs and risks are worth it. And I'm sure there are studies that are looking at that right now. Um, but we Mark can't Cuban, I remember, and I don't know whatever happened to the study. It was being done with my alma mater, Michigan. Um, really wanted to look at, HGH. I believe it was for HGH for meniscus tears. Yep. It, it might have been MCL, ACL too, but basically looking at HGH to help people recover from meniscus tears. And Mark Cuban is savvy as can be. And of course, it was couched as like injury rehab to help people thrive and live better. But I remember my first thought was like, this guy's brilliant. He owns an NBA team. He wants to extend the careers of his stars. Yep. Um, Why not see if this thing that promotes growth can 
help a Kobe Bryant, you know, the late Kobe Bryant play two more years. And this is why you need science, because if if you don't have it, maybe you decide to do that and then you become... You give all your stars cancer. (laughs) You give give your stars cancer. You have a big lawsuit (laughs) 20 years later. Right. Or you become Barry Bonds and your head size somehow grows several inches. Um, Anyways, like, that's why we have science to figure these things out. And that's why I think it's... Again, it's not just RFK Jr., but if you look at these guys who often are in that kind of anti-vaccine, you know, conspiracy, blah, blah, blah world, you know, they're often on all these supplements, drugs, steroids. You know, I think of a Joe Rogan who's on copious amounts of supplements, testosterone, HGH, and it's like... He owns, he co-owns on it. So he's also like, or or maybe he doesn't own it. I don't want to misspeak. He's at the very least like a primary investor in a massive supplement company. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the thing is, again, we can be anti-big pharma, which again has its things, but it's just kind of ironic that the anti-big pharma guys are literally on the juice and more pharmaceuticals than the vast majority of people. So, yeah. And it's just a cult religious thing. I found it really interesting. Um, Peter Atia, the physician who wrote, um, the recent book, Oh crap. What's it called? He wrote a book on longevity. It just came out. It was good. It was on my reading list. I was very actually, um, like pleasantly surprised by it because I've been critical of him in the past. And he was definitely like one of these, um, kind of like anti-establishment to an extent people and had a lot of the same audience, but you can't help but read his book and like wonder if everyone should be on a statin. And it's just been nuts to see like his audience, parts of his audience turn on him and call him like statin boy when like statins are like, you know, perhaps the most prescribed medication over the last 10 years in every five years. Well, I guess it's probably every two years. Cause I feel like there's been a couple waves of this, there's like uh, statins cause this or statins cause that. And then statins never end up causing the thing in question in like any worrisome amount, if at all. Um, and I think that just goes to show you like it is really more of a religious belief in the sense that it does not it is not predicated on evidence than a scientific belief when it comes to this stuff. Bingo. If you can't change your mind based on the evidence, then it's a religious belief. And I think, you know, for example, RFK and his is uh, autism vaccine stuff, which he's held on to for 20 years and not changed his mind based on the data. That's enough right there to show you it's religion, not science. So, yeah. And that goes with most of these guys. And we're not saying science is perfect, as we've said, but it's the way to figure out what is what works, what the dangers are, etc. So we need more science and regulation power behind it, not less. That's right. And as Steve wrote in our recent newsletter last week, um, even science can be like mis misapplied or not even misapplied, but misrepresented very easily. So it's like, you know, a meta analysis, which is a study of studies or multiple meta analyses. Like you want to look where there's lots of data over a long period of time and very clear patterns and trends and assume that those things are right, but be willing to change your mind. Whereas the contrarian looks where there's big data, lots of trends, replicability over time and says, oh, it must be the establishment tricking us. So I'm going to go off in this corner and do something else um, because it's different. Exactly. 
Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Steve, this was fun. We talked about rest for a long time. We closed the notch on RFK Jr. We both have good eyes for that. If you're going to roll to Asheville or Houston and train in our gym, if you're doped up, you better be honest, because otherwise Steve and I are going to spot you from across the gym. We're going to know right away that you are on the juice. So be careful. Stay clean. Or if you're going to dope, you know, be... um be honest about it. And if, and, and I want to be like very clear again, because I know that there are some listeners that I'm sure are on testosterone replacement therapy for all the right reasons. Um, that's fine. What's not fine is to <laughs> show pictures of yourself doing push-ups, say that it's all natural training and you don't trust pharmaceutical companies while taking supplemental testosterone. That's where our problem lies. Bingo. Don't be a huge hypocrite. Yeah. All right, my man. Well, um, best of luck. I hope you get a good afternoon nap in. Uh, listeners, hopefully you can, you know, unwire yourself. If you're going to go put RFK Jr. or Elon Musk into your social media search bar to get that last hit of anxiety, then give yourself an extra 30 minutes to unwind and uh, hopefully you take some good rest. And we'll catch you next week. <laughs>